Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 7. Come, Holy Spirit. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know that the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, in the midst of their very severe trial, their overflowing joy, in the, in the midst of their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege uh, of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then, and, and then by the will of God to others. So we urged Titus, just as he earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Father, thank you that your word is alive, that it is a light and a lamp to our lives. Father, thank you for the moments you shared on worship. Thank you that it's true, that it is a reality, that you're alive, that you're near, and that you speak to us. And as we open your scriptures, Father, would you move in our midst? Would we acknowledge your voice and be attentive to hear it? Like I said, you're so welcome. We hope you feel at home and at ease among us. Um, here in this community, we have an agenda. Uh, we have something that we, we long for, for every single person that calls this church family home, but even more than that, for every single person that calls this region of the Lagan Valley home. And this is it, that we are longing to lead you ourselves and this region into a fully surrendered life, that we would surrender our entire lives to the rule and the reign of Jesus, and that we would learn to demonstrate that rule and reign through our lives and in our community for the flourishing of everyone. That this is what this whole thing called Christianity is actually all about. It, it's not just inviting Jesus into our lives or our heart. It's not just like inviting Jesus to be a part of something. It's actually that we would learn how to surrender every single part of our lives to his rule and reign, and that we would learn how to join in with him in demonstrating the presence of his rule and reign in the world for the flourishing of everyone. I heard a brilliant story this week of uh, someone in our community who works in a brewery, and their boss came to talk about how one of the beers in the brewery wasn't uh, performing as well as he would like, and uh, her impulse was, we need to pray, because God cares about your beer. And, uh, and there in the middle of the brewery, she started praying that, uh, that that particular beer that wasn't going so well, that, that it would turn around. I just, I love that. I love that. God cares about beer, I think. <laughs> um, but even more than that, just last Thursday or Friday, um, the brewery owner's wife came to talk to her and just began to share about some of the difficulties that are going on in their life. And there in the middle of the office, she said, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And uh, I don't know if you've ever prayed for somebody before who doesn't really come to church or believe in God. It's kind of awkward because, uh, you know, most of the time we pray in here, you guys all like know how this works, or at least most of you do, and you go like this. But usually, if, like, if you're in an office context or the street or something like that, and you have to pray for somebody, they go like this. 
And I love this. this uh, our friend prayed for, for this lady and the awkwardness of the lady just staring right at her as she poured out her heart um, and helped this lady connect to the truth that God really, really loves her. And uh, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Um, we're in the middle of a, of a series at the minute called Metrics. And uh, really, we've kind of pushed pause on some of the kind of, I guess, bigger picture to kind of dig into how are we really doing as a community? Like, how are we doing with the things that we say are really important to us? And uh, where are we and all that kind of stuff? And we've actually dared to try and measure some of these things, I know. Um, and so we've been talking about this idea of surrender, and we've been trying to measure how surrendered we are. We've asked you if you've been baptized, or if you haven't, would you like to be? And uh, we've talked about devotional rhythms and how engaged with the scriptures and prayer we are. Last week, we reflected on the life of St. Patrick and uh, how front-footed we are in uh, our ability to share our faith with those around us. That's really, really important. And one of the things that's really interesting is uh, I think around 86 or 87% of you said that sharing your faith with the people around you is really, really important. That's really exciting for us. Um, the problem was 50% of you say that you feel able, which is great. This is the whole point of this. So we know that loads of you are like, I want to do this, and half of you are like, but I don't have a clue how. And so when we get out of this, we'll add some things to uh, help follow up on some of this stuff. But this morning, I want to keep going. I wonder what you would say you care about more than anything else in your life. What, what would you say... Like if I said, take 30 seconds, tell the person beside you, what is it that you care most about in your life? Maybe some of you would say my kids, some of you would say my spouse, some of you might say Liverpool Football Club, and you know, you may leave now. Uh, I wonder what you would say you care about more than anything else in your life. This morning, um, I want to talk about money. And... Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, I'm aware that I may be confirming every stereotype there is about church and church leaders, that all we ever do is talk about money. Um, and there's a bit of a challenge for me in this, because you should know something about us, and particularly maybe about me, is that like I've given my life to uh, do everything I can to follow Jesus really well. We believe that he's actually alive, and, um, and that he has lots to say about lots of things. And one of the things, if you're familiar with the Gospels, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you, you read those, you'll no notice something if you pay attention. Jesus talks about money all the time. Talks about money and possessions all the time. So, like, if you're a bit mad that we're talking about money, blame Jesus, not me, right? Um, it's kind of it's his deal. He spoke about money more than prayer. He spoke about money more than serving others. In fact, 42% of the parables of Jesus were about money and possession. There are around 500 verses in the entire Bible um, about prayer. There are less than 500 verses about faith, and there are over 2,000 about money and possessions. Why does Jesus talk about money so much? Well, he knows that where your money is, your heart is. He knows that where your money goes, there your affection goes. Some of you will be familiar with it was Jesus himself that said, where your treasure is, there also you will find your heart. That whatever you value, there you will find your cares. If you want to answer the question, what I really care about, what I really care about, like if you want to know the answer to that, look at your bank statement. You will find it there in black and white. And that, that can feel a bit like, oh, really, Andy? And yes, it's true. It doesn't really matter what we say, because we say we care about lots of things, right? 
But the real answer to what we care about, you find it once a month when it lands in your inbox or through your letterbox saying what you actually spend your money on. I wonder if you know how to spell discipleship. Have you ever tried to spell discipleship? We'll do the experiment for a second, right? We're going to spell discipleship together out loud. I know some of you are like, I don't know, it's this kind of church where you have to like do stuff. I just want to sit here and fall asleep. But we'll just, you know, I'll not ask you to do too much else the rest of the morning, okay? So we're going to spell discipleship together. I'm going to count to three, and then I want you all to start, and we're just going to spell it together. Some of you are like typing it out, going like, quick, autocorrect, don't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> right, we're going to do it after three. We're going to spell discipleship together, okay? Ready? One, two, three. M O. <laughs> Some stuck. <laughs> um, discipleship is actually spelled M O N E Y. That's how you spell discipleship. Now, it's, yeah, if you want to get really logical and say, well, that's not actually how you spell the word, yeah, you're right. But discipleship is all about our money. If you're uh, a little bit uncomfortable with that, that's not. My quote either, that's a John Wimber quote. Some of you will be very familiar with John Wimber who started the Vineyard Movement, and he used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And what's really interesting is that one really took off. And loads of people not even connected with the Vineyard talk about that. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. That faith and risk are completely linked. It's really interesting. That's probably, I would hedge a bet that most of you, that's the first time you've heard that John Wimber quote, that discipleship is spelled M-O-N-E-Y. It's not quite as palatable or as inspiring. It doesn't make too many conferences or books. But the reality is it's true. Discipleship has lots to say about our relationship with our money. You see, you can say all day long that my life is surrendered to Jesus. But if that's not reflected in your approach to your money, I don't think you're being completely honest with yourself or with God. Ouch. These are the kind of talks as a preacher I don't really like giving because they're equal parts challenging to you as they are to me. I was chatting with a friend recently about this, and he shared that in his childhood, I was so inspired by this, he said whenever he was growing up, his parents, I don't know what age they started, but his parents used to do a monthly budget meeting with him and his brother and sister, and it wasn't for their pocket money, it was like their family budget, and they would talk through how much money they were making and the decisions they were making with that money and where, where it went, and the kids were absolutely central to that process, I was really inspired by it, he said whenever he was about 10, they were having this monthly budget meeting and he said he noticed and he said to his dad, he said, dad, is it true that we give the government three times as much as we give God? And I can't imagine what that must have felt like for his poor dad. And uh, what he was looking at was the 10% of their monthly income that they budgeted to the church and the 30% that they give to the government in tax. And uh, Matt was saying that uh, the next month, I think he was 10, he said he'd never forget this. The next month, his mom and dad came and they had done whatever they needed to do to make sure that for that month, they gave more money to God than they paid in tax. Now, <laughs> the next month, I think it went back to normal because that wasn't overly sustainable. But I was so inspired by that model with a couple of parents to pull their kids into, this is our family's resources and here are the decisions that we make 
and what we invest in, and you are a part of that. I wonder when it comes to this whole idea of money, finances, and God, and spirituality, and faith, and life, and sitting in a room with somebody like me talking about it, I wonder what it provokes in you. Like, I wonder what your emotions are like right now. Like, just take a moment. Stop thinking about how many light bulbs are up here or, you know, what's in the oven for Sunday lunch. Just take a moment and pay attention to what's going on in your heart, in your emotions at the minute. I wonder how many of us are deeply uncomfortable, how many of us are a little bored, how many of us are inspired. What's interesting to me as somebody who stands up here talking all the time is I, I notice this often. The reality is we love the talks that we live, right? Like we love sitting in here when we're living what we're talking about. It's funny, last week we were talking about sharing our faith and praying for people and I had loads of texts last Sunday afternoon from people who are living that, loving that we talked about it. You know, I was just with somebody yesterday praying with them. I just had friends around or not connected to church. They were asking us why we go to this vineyard thing and we ended up praying for them. And as I stand up here and talk about that being important, they're like, yes, this is alive in my life. Say it more. And those of us that maybe it's not are like, say it less, shut up. I was listening to our friend uh, Alan Scott recently and, and he illustrated this wonderfully. He asked a question in the room. He said, how many married men in the room made the bed this morning? Any of you? Any of you? Stood it? Look at you, heroes. The rest of us are like, get out. I was definitely not one of those men. But Alan, Alan went on to say, if he was preaching on masculinity and said the journey to rediscovering biblical masculinity began with making your bed in the morning, the men in the room that had made their bed would want to stand up and go, yes, yes it is, and that's alive in my life, and God loves me, and I'm getting it all right, and the rest of us would go, shut up, like, you know, there's way other ways of being a man and making your bed in the morning. And actually, I was making coffee for my wife who was still in bed. What about that, Alan Scott? You know? <laughs> this is the thing. You see, we love, we love the talks that we're living. And the ones that we're not, we're like, we can do all kinds of mental and emotional gymnastics to find ourselves going, that's just wrong, or he's just arrogant, or, you know, that's just nonsense. I don't even like that church anyway. Why do we even go to that church, you know? And, like, sometimes it's too cold, and sometimes it's too hot, and what's going on with the Satan system anyway? <laughs> right? It's a question we ask a lot. <laughs> it's amazing, you see, once... Once you get into an environment where God starts to put his finger on some stuff in your life, the easiest thing to do is make excuses and complain and begin to do all these kind of emotional gymnastics to justify why it's not really God at all. It's just some agent. I don't know why I'm sitting here listening anyway. What if it's God? What if the point isn't that you'd be comfortable? What if it's that you'd be free? 
What if the voice of God in our lives was not so that we would be comfortable? Don't mishear me. God will comfort us. But he cares way more about your freedom than he does your comfort. When was the last time the voice of God surprised you? You see, I think sometimes we can mistakenly think that God only ever talks to us about stuff we're comfortable with, or stuff we're doing well. God only ever comes to encourage us. Well, I, and he does come to encourage us, but sometimes it doesn't feel that encouraging. Sometimes we totally confuse discipline for judgment. That when God's voice comes and convicts us, it's not because he's angry or mad. He's not some grumpy headmaster who's like, you're not generous. Detention for four weeks. He longs for us to be free. And how many of you are crippled with anxiety when it comes to your finances? And you avoid it and you lean out of it. You come to talk like this and think about the heating. God longs for us to surrender our entire lives. And our finances are a huge part of that. In fact, if you haven't surrendered your finances to God, you could argue you haven't surrendered at all. Our finances are often the place that we get security from, right? They're the thing that we can so often place our hope in. And God will never leave that alone. Because he knows that the best thing for us is that we would learn to put our hope in him. Not our bank balance. Our attitude to money affects and infects everything in our lives. It is impossible to be spiritually mature without being generous. It is impossible to be spiritually mature without being generous. Why? Because God is the most generous being in the entire cosmos. And spiritual maturity is about being conformed into his likeness. So it means to be mature doesn't mean that you've no mess in your life. It doesn't mean that everything is beautifully ordered. It doesn't mean that you know the Bible back to front. It means that the way you approach life and the people around you is the same way that Jesus would were he living your life. That's what spiritual maturity is. It's full of adventure and it's full of risk and it is marked by radical generosity. Radical generosity. We are never more like God than when we are being generous. We are never more like God than when we are being generous. And I have to confess, as a church leader, I think we have got this wrong so often. We think we're like God when we're morally right or superior. We think we're like God when we're winning the argument. We are never more like God than when we are being radically generous, giving ourselves away to our community and those in need around us. We're talking about this because it is perhaps the most important metric when it comes to the spiritual health of our lives and our community. I'm not sure there is a more important metric as to how spiritually healthy we are as a church family and as individuals than our generosity. It's difficult, it's awkward, but it is so, so, so important. I am convinced that the church should be the most generous community on the planet. It should be who we are. 
it's a total no-brainer that we worship the most generous being in the entire cosmos. And we should be able to be accused of all sorts of things. But the one thing that we should be known of and for in this community and the world around us as the body of Jesus is that we are generous. One of the things that I love actually is in this city that is our reputation. Lagan Valley Vineyard is known for being unbelievably generous. This Friday night, we're going to be a part of opening the Journey Church's new building up on the Longstone, and we're going to share some of that story. If you don't know that story, ask somebody around you. We don't necessarily have time to go into it at the moment. But one of the dangers of being part of a generous community is that you can be generous by association, but not in your life. You can feel like, well, I'm part of this generous thing that gives thousands of pounds away to other people in other places, and it's brilliant. We will never settle for that because God will never settle for that. Because he longs for this, not just to be our story, but to be your story. Every single family, every single individual, every single person. God longs for us to be free and to be whole. For lives to be a vibrant example of his presence and his goodness. And wholeness comes from generosity. If you're finding in your life there's areas of dysfunction or brokenness and you think, I just, I just want to deal with this. I just want to grow in this. I just want to get better at this. Walk through the door of generosity and watch what it produces in your life. Route one to dysfunctional habits and behaviors and atmospheres around your life is to live with the question, what about me? Live with that question for a week and just watch how toxic the atmosphere of your heart gets. Just, just walk into every interaction you have, every coffee, every work meeting, every friendship, every bit of conflict. Just live with the, what about me? I'm here for me. Go to coffee and shut up. I want to talk about me. I have stuff going on. You should listen to me. Watch what happens. Equally, I dare you. Watch what happens if you walk the opposite direction. What about you? Every conversation, every coffee, every meeting, every conflict, what about you? How are you? How can I help? It's the most powerful question you can perhaps ever ask. How can I help? How can I help? How can I help? Generosity produces wholeness and health in our lives. If you could begin to practice one discipline that would breed wholeness in your life, it's generosity. I want to look briefly this morning at that uh, text Chris read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier, made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnest, and in love, in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. 
It's a really interesting passage. Just a little bit of context here. The church in Jerusalem has undergone pretty significant persecution. Property has been taken. People have been thrown in jail. Stuff is going all kinds of crazy. And the church in Corinth has been involved in helping, sending money and sending stuff and all that kind of thing. And they've kind of forgotten. It's come off their radar. And Paul is writing in this moment to this church to encourage them to finish what they've started. For any of you familiar with the writings and the personality of St. Paul, you could easily assume that his approach to this situation would be a swift and pretty direct rebuke. Hey, there's people in need over here, and they're your brothers and sisters. Stop being so selfish and help, right? It's a little bit more the tone of Paul that we catch in other places, and that's not how he goes after this. Why? We're not really sure, but I am really aware that guilt is good at motivating people for a moment, but it doesn't create any momentum. It doesn't create any momentum. Paul says rather, now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. There are three levels when it comes to our giving or our generosity that we see in our lives. The first and most basic level is giving because of need. It's the simple and most basic form of generosity. When you see a need, you meet it. Some of you will remember at Christmas time, Yvette sharing the story of the family in Lisburn that had to like schedule sports for their kids on different days because they had one pair of trainers for three kids. And so the kids were having to make sure they were like swapping the trainers for different kind of sports. The next Sunday, we were coming down with trainers. It was an illustration of poverty in our city. It wasn't a call for trainers, but you guys just heard and were like, that's not cool. We can buy trainers. Here, have some trainers. And that story is repeated over and over in our community. And I love that. People hear about need and it's not even people asking for help. They just hear about something. And you've heard me tell a story of Roy who was leading worship here, being the Jesus debt collector, heard about the family, goes around knocking on doors. It's like there's a family that needs money to fix their car. Give me your money. We're going to fix the car. Giving to need. The reality is that's alive all over the world. People that don't even (laughs) consider God real. People giving to need. And it's really important, but it's the most basic form of generosity. Level one is we give to need. Level two, we give to vision. We're captured by something in the future and we want to be a part of making it real. Some of you will remember the moment we stood in here when this did not look like this. And we prayed. It was an empty warehouse. We're dreaming that it would become a space for people to encounter Jesus and worship him. And a bunch of you were like, I want to be a part of that. And so we prayed here and we jumped in our cars and we drove back up to Palm Park. We sang a song and then we just gave what we had. There was about 73, not that I count these kind of things, there was about 73 adults out that day. It was like one of our smallest gatherings for about eight months. And in one day, we raised 104,000 pounds. Because people were captured by a vision that we could actually make a space like this for people to encounter Jesus and worship him. Giving because of vision is the next level up from giving to need, and it's equally important. But one of the things I notice in church is we typically get stuck at both one or the other. We talk about need or we talk about vision. 
We're constantly trying to paint the next kind of, here's the next thing that you need to give towards, and here's the next thing that we're going to try and reach for. And listen, that's important, and I get that, but I think there's more. And the reality is there are people all over the world that exercise both of those things, and sometimes to way greater extents than the church, giving to need and giving to vision. But is there anything different going on in the church? We worship a God who is outrageously generous. And if the whole point of discipleship is that we would become like Jesus, then it follows that the church should be the most radically generous people on the planet, which brings us to the third level of generosity, and I think the one that we are supposed to live at. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Level one, we give because of need. Level two, we give because of vision. But level three, we give because of grace. It's a work of God's grace in our lives. And it moves us from a posture of this to one of this. It's a supernatural thing. Any of you remember the story of Zacchaeus? The little man who was little. And the little man was he. It's so tragic that Zacchaeus is famous for being short. We've totally missed the point of the story. Like he's famous for being short and famous for climbing a tree. What about the moment where when he encounters Jesus, he's like, half of what I have I'm going to give away. Impulsively, one encounter with the grace of God and he gives away half of what he owns. And if that wasn't enough, he then says, oh, and by the way, anyone that I've cheated, I'm going to pay them back four times what I've taken. By the way, Zacchaeus' job was to cheat people. I love how he says, if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay them back four times. Zacchaeus cheated everyone. He cheated everyone. And one moment, one encounter with the grace of God flipped his life from exploiting all those that lived around him for his own gain to giving away almost everything he had. It's radical, it's extravagant, and it is a work of grace. This is why the church in Acts gives everything. It's a logical response when you understand the gospel. How can we, how can we hold on to the little we have when we know that God gave up everything for us? And it's not about like a shame motivator. It's just like when you get it, you're like, oh, here, here, here. It's a work. It is a work of grace. Verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 8. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. You ever read things in the scriptures that think they don't make any sense? Like none of these words belong in the same sentence. In the midst of a severe trial, the logical follow-on is they felt let down by God. In the midst of a severe trial, they felt abandoned by Jesus. In the midst of a severe trial, they began to cry out, God, where are you? Why is all of this happening? That's not what it says. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy. Generosity will do that to you. Produces joy in the atmosphere of your heart. 
no matter how bad things get, the muscle of generosity is like a revolutionary rage against what's coming against you, that you don't shut up and you don't shrink back, but you lean in to all that God is doing. And look what happens. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Who has joy in trials? How does poverty result in generosity? It is the grace of God. It is a work of grace. People training church leaders say all this, you know, all the time they say this thing. They say money follows vision. Money follows vision. So you have to make sure as a church leader, you're like stoking vision all the time because money follows vision. And that's kind of true, but money flows from grace. And I'm much more interested in seeing that river flow. Money flows from grace. You know our most famous son in this city, Richard Wallace, do you know what he's famous for? Being generous. He was an art collector and a philanthropist. He was famous for giving his money away. The Siege of Paris, 19th century, I think. He funded the first public ambulance service to take care of the sick. That gets my attention because I think sometimes God hides things in the soil of places and people. Sovereign foundations, one friend calls them. Things that need identified and exposed and watered and let loose. What if actually the destiny of this city wasn't to be some weird little brother to Belfast who could never quite figure out who it was? What if it was to discover a destiny of generosity? That the people that call the Lagan Valley home would be known as the most generous people on the island of Ireland impulsively giving themselves away in the midst of severe trial, in the midst of extreme poverty, welling up in joyous, generous giving. It's a work of God. For the past six years, we've taught about tithing here in Lagan Valley Vineyard of giving a minimum of 10% of our income away. And it's a really helpful principle if you're like, where should I start? Well, that's a, that's a helpful kind of thing to do. It's, it's interesting. There's, there's not much precedent in the New Testament for tithing. Why? Because they give way more than that. If you want to go all New Testament, like, you know, you're into houses and land and, you know, at one point, everything. And every time I've spoken about tithing in the past, I've received emails from people saying, well, Andy, you know what, like I give to this charity and that charity and I give a bit to the church and, you know, giving to this, giving to that and giving to the church, it all adds up to 10%. Is that okay? And my response, to be totally honest, is always, of course. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to some sort of percentage income giveaway. That's religion and it's dead. This is not about us trying to wangle our way to give a little bit there and a little bit there and a little bit there and get to 10% and think, yep, we're doing okay. I long for your entire life when it comes to your finances to be free and radically generous. To be totally honest, I don't really care if that's 6% or 60%. The point is, what's going on in here? 
Some of you say, well, you know, I'll, I'll be generous. I'll be generous whenever I have a bit more. And I just can't be generous right now. But I, if I had a lot, if I had what you had, well, sure, I'd be generous. The hard truth is, no, you wouldn't. That's hard. But it's true. If you're not generous when you have a little, don't kid yourself that you'd be generous when you have a lot. I'll never forget about three years ago, sitting in a room in London with Rick Warren. Some of you will know Rick Warren. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life. At that time, it was the second best-selling book of all time, second only to the Bible. Imagine being that guy. And he said, people ask me all the time, Rick, why do you think God gave you the best-selling book of all time, second only to the Bible? And he said, I always said, oh, that's easy. He knew what I'd do with the money. Rick and his wife, when they got married, and they had very little, decided they were going to give more money away every single year. Every single year, they would sit down and have their annual financial review, and every single year, they would increase what they were giving. And he said, and that was crazy for a long time. He said, there were years where we were going, jeez, it's like half a percent this year, but we're giving it, and it's costing us. It's not generosity until it's sacrificial. It's not generosity until it hurts. It's not generous if you can afford it. And every single year, Rick and his wife have been giving more money away. The last I heard him talk about it, they were giving away 96% of their income. And they didn't buy a bigger house, and he didn't buy a better car. When they became literally multimillionaires overnight, the first thing he did was write a check to the church for everything they'd paid him for his entire career. Here, have that back. And they continued to live off the salary that they'd always lived off. What if you could learn to worship God in every part of your lives, especially your finance? What if this whole subject did not have to be full of fear and anxiety? And you know what's true, I think, for most of us? It's not that we're selfish. It's just that we're scared. It's just that we're scared. Giving takes us to the question that I find on God's lips every day to me. Andy, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? So how are we doing? If you've been journeying this metrics series with us, you will have an email in your inbox right now with a survey. I don't want to encourage you this morning to take it out because I fully expect most of you, I think it's probably a very small percentage of you that can answer those questions right now, but I, I expect most of you to actually have to go away and sit down with your bank account or a spreadsheet at home and begin to work through it. But remember, please remember, the two commitments we began this journey with. Be honest and be gentle. It does not help us if you have certain things in your life where you're like, well, that could maybe be generosity. And so, you know, we'll add that in and that'll maybe make it look a little bit better. It's an anonymous survey. You're helping no one by trying to make it look a little better than, than it is. So please, please be really honest. 
And equally, this is really important. Please be really gentle. Our goal in this is not that you would be motivated by feeling bad or that you would feel any sense of shame. It's that we would get an accurate picture of what's actually going on in this community. Finally, I want to give just three really practical things that I want you to to wrestle with in response to this. The first one is this, and it seems so simple, but it amazes me how few people do this. The first one is this. Invite God into your finances. Invite God in. Sit down in front of your banking app or your spreadsheet or whatever it is and say, God, would you come and lead me in my approach to money? Just invite him in to the process. Ask him to speak to you about it and to guide you with what to do with your money. Number two, this is really, really important. Budget your giving. Budget your giving. This is particularly helpful for the kind of over 18, under 30 age group. Love sitting over here. And then Kevin Brandon in the middle of it all. <laughs> it, it, it amazes me, particularly, and for, forgive me if this is offensive in any way, but it's, it, I just notice this as I do life with people, and particularly young adults. Generosity looks like buying lunches for their friends, buying sandwiches for homeless people when they see them, and, you know, they're generous, right? Just imagine only paying taxes when you felt like it. That'd be awesome, right? Be like, see you next year, HMRC. You see, there's something about budgeting or giving that makes it real, not momentary. Not that there's a need to, yeah, homeless person, I'll go buy them a sandwich and there we go, or out for friends. And be like, well, I'll buy the coffees today because I'm a Christian and I feel like I should. Budget your giving. Invite God into the process and then plan and do it intentionally. And then finally, and I've never done this before, but I think it's important, particularly for the next kind of leg of the journey for us at Langham Valley Vineyard. I want to ask you this morning to prayerfully consider prioritizing giving to Langham Valley Vineyard. I know there are lots of you give to lots of other things, and those are great things, but I want to ask you to prayerfully consider prioritizing giving to Lagan Valley Vineyard. One of the things that's important for me to say in that is that we're not doing this because we're in trouble. It's kind of the sneaky, you know, board meeting where it's like, geez, we've no money. Quick, get Andy out to talk about money. That's not what's going on. We've as much money as we've always had in the sense that we have what we need. We have what we need. And that's God's promise to us. So we're quite comfortable with that. But this is about you and your heart and how free God actually wants you to be where this whole subject wouldn't be a source of shame or a source of fear, but it would be a source of joy. Imagine that. Imagine if we became the kind of church where the reputation was, I love it when we talk about money because we're so flipping generous. Imagine that. We love the talks that we live. Imagine if every year we're like, I can't wait for the money talk. I can't wait for when he talks about money. It's like, yes. I was like, what's your favorite talk? When he talks about money. Really? Can you imagine that? 
What if we became that kind of community? That modeled the character and nature of God to the city because we are so flipping generous. If you're able, we stand, pray for us as we finish. One of the things we teach our kids to do is just to um, physically embody the posture of their souls. And so uh, if you want to receive from God this morning, I encourage you to close your eyes and just raise your hands up in front of you. Nobody's going to look. It's, there's no magic in it. It's just a physical embodiment of the posture of your heart and your soul that, God, I, I want to receive from you in this moment. And the beautiful thing is he's so generous. He's so generous. He's here to give. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and rest on us? Come and give us what we need this morning. Would you give us hope? Would you give us courage? Would you give us comfort? But I ask this morning, Lord, that you would give us faith. Faith to believe that you are who you say you are and that you're trustworthy. And Lord, I just want to pray for all of those in the room right now who struggle with fear and anxiety when it comes to finance. And I want you to hear from God right now. Don't be afraid. Father, I pray for a supernatural work in people's finances. I want to pray specifically for those of you in the room right now. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up or respond. I pray right now for those of you who are crippled by debt, that this year you would experience a supernatural breakthrough in that area. That God would set you free. And not so that you would owe him something, but because he is good and he loves you. And Lord, we just humbly say this morning that we want to be the kind of community that looks like you. And so help us all to be brave and to be full of faith and being generous. In Jesus' name I pray.